there, I'm Adam Rissman, and welcome to another edition of Inside Intercom. We're going to kick off this episode with some really exciting news. If you've been following the show throughout 2018, you're hopefully familiar with our growth series. Our thesis for this collection of interviews was pretty simple. We wanted to sit down with those who established the growth marketing function at some of the most successful software companies of this generation. Long story short, we got such a positive reaction from listeners that the wheels started turning. How can we bring that content to an even bigger audience? The results of that effort came to fruition this week with the release of our newest book, The Growth Handbook. In addition to excerpts from our podcast series, we actually interviewed our own team here at Intercom for their insights and also included some of the best writing on growth that really helped and inspired Intercom in our early days. The end product is a set of stories from people who have grown companies from zero dollars to billions in revenue. And along the way, they figured out some of the hardest growth problems, so you don't have to. Perhaps you're acquiring customers, but they're just not sticking around. Maybe you don't understand what metrics you should be tracking. Or perhaps you found product market fit, but are struggling with getting your pricing right. This book, like our growth podcast series before it, will help you answer all these questions and many, many more. So step one today, go to intercom.com forward slash books and get your free copy of the growth handbook. And with that, in this episode, you're going to hear a few of our favorite excerpts from the recent run of growth conversations we've had here on the show. I guess you could call it our growth series greatest hits or our TLDR. In the next half hour, you'll hear from Andreessen Horowitz general partner, Andrew Chen, Metro Mile VP of product and former Atlassian growth leader, Sean Klaus, ex-Pinterest and Grubhub growth leader, Casey Winters, former Duolingo VP of growth and marketing, Gina Gotthilf, Growth Hackers CEO, Sean Ellis, and Eventbrite VP, Brian Rothenberg. Each shares their take on a different core challenge from acquisition, activation, and retention to things like testing and what metrics to measure. If you like what you hear, you can catch each of these full interviews by subscribing to Inside Intercom on iTunes or wherever your preferred podcast destination may be. All right, let's get into it. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. In your earliest days, customers are likely finding your product through one way, word of mouth. It's the most economical way to acquire new users, but over time, its returns slowly diminish. This means you've got to try new tactics and acquisition channels to get folks into your product. However, none of the tactics you'll hear about or try are silver bullets or have anything close to an infinite lifespan. Ultimately, what Andreessen Horowitz general partner and former Uber growth leader Andrew Chin calls the law of shitty click-throughs is going to kick in. Here, Andrew explains how those of us in marketing and growth can stay ahead of the user acquisition curve. You know, the idea is that, especially in pure consumer products, there was a period of time where, you know, we had like address book importers and like, you may remember that, you you know, it used to be when you got an invite to a product from a friend, you were like, oh my God, what is this? This is so cool. You know, I want (laughs) I want to use this. And people just kind of get used to that. And so eventually you get to a point where, especially now that we've gone to mobile, we don't have the concept of contact importers in that work as effectively yeah. as the ones before. Also, because of the fact that you know email spam and text spam are very different things, and that the latter there's actually lots of laws around mm-hmm. it, TCPA, etc. And like the intermediaries like Twilio have like a very um, you know strict stance on that stuff. And so what it means is that you know virality is much harder. The spammy kind of virality that we were seeing 
you know, during the Facebook platform mm-hmm. and days, you know, is, is sort of not, not well, there the peak, peak time of social media. Right. Yeah. That said, right, I'm still hugely bullish about, I think what, what you have to do then is one of a couple of things. One, one thing you could do is you could, you could work in a different area where, you know, these channels sort of haven't been exhausted yet. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think one of the areas that I'm super excited about within all the B2B kind of workplace stuff is my calendar has all the information about who I'm meeting on a day-to-day basis, mm-hmm. right? The documents that I'm editing and everyone else's edits on the document tell me all the folks who are interested in the topics that I'm interested in, right? right? And my email inbox is completely obvious, right? But even some of the other tools like Slack and Asana and so on, like give a really great signals on on who I'm collaborating with. And I've actually seen very few products that are like really build on that idea and make that aware. I feel like that's just like this data, this this the workplace graph that's just like sitting there, mm-hmm. right? And so I think, you know, I'm really excited to see what where people take that. And that's a lot of that is is really taking consumer ideas and bringing them into the workplace and then at, you know, adjusting them within your workplace. You're not going to need to follow your coworkers, right? Like yeah. you're just on teams automatically, mm-hmm. you know, you're on the same email domains, right? It's much easier in many yeah. ways. So that's, that's one way. The other way is within consumer is that you have to make, you have to figure out how to make a lot more money and then to use different forms of paid acquisition, right? So, you know, if you are a, a product that figures out a awesome consumer subscription business, or you figured out a really high, you know, ticket item like housing yeah. or cars or something like that, and you're able to more efficiently, you know, get to that, then all of a sudden you can innovate within paid acquisition. You can innovate using, you know, you can do paid referrals, right? You can do paid ads. You can sort of figure out different kind of incentives. That's actually, you know, as on a total side tangent, I think, you know, we're very early on a lot of the crypto stuff. Yeah. But I think one of the areas that I'm very excited about is as we see applications being developed on crypto, you know, if we kind of fast forward a couple of years, I think there's going to be a lot of really innovative ways that people are going to, you know, play around with whether it's referrals or different kind of incentivized engagement. So looking at all this from a higher level, there's always going to be eventually some diminishing returns on, on these channels. And that's right. sort of coined by... One of your, I think your most famous essays, The Law of Shitty Click-Throughs, probably being tired of being asked about it by now. But no, I mean, no, it's great. No, it's always true. It's always true. No, I love it. But I, yeah, I it is, it is, is sort of yeah. always true. It's a timeless concept. And so right. what I'm curious about is in the time since you have written that, there have been you know totally new channels that have emerged, like the idea to you know, work within messengers. At the same time, other new aspects of mobile. I mean, how have you seen that observation materialize right. in, in these new areas? Right. Yeah, I, I think, I think you know, just to kind of summarize the idea when we go back and look at online, just like banner ads, mm-hmm. the very first banner ad that was on, you know, at the time, hotwired.com had a, you know, 70% plus click-through rate. And now 20 years later, you look at the average click-through rate and it's like 0.05%, you know, or whatever, yeah. right? It's like very low. And and anyone that's that's kind of, you know, worked in the industry long enough has seen this also happen with email. They've seen this happen with SMS. They've yeah. seen this happen with, you know, all sorts of things. And there's a bunch of reasons, right? It's like you have competition, you have the platforms themselves being like, hey, we need to like clamp down on this. Mm-hmm. There's just, you know, literally just habituation from end users where they're like, oh, 
it used to be fun to get an invite from my friend, but now like I'm getting it all the time. So it's just less effective. Yep. Right. You have a lot more noise. crowding, crowding effect. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's a bunch of these, you know, you know, different, different reasons. And I think that this is just, you know, the reason why I call it the law of shitty click throughs is that it is something that uh, has been with us for a really long time. And will continue to be with us for a really long time. And what, what that means is for all of us that are in, you know, marketing and growth is that we have to continually find what the fresh powder is yeah. because, you know, inevitably whatever worked in the past will no longer work, right? It's it's one of these things where that's exactly why by the time something is a case study that's been published on Medium, you know, that something's going to work, then it's like, all right, it's probably done yeah. at, that, at that point, right? <laughs> but that means like everyone also has to do it, but then you have to move beyond that. If your business is going to grow, then sure, you will need to acquire more users. But if your business is going to survive, that only happens if you're able to keep those users and keep them coming back to your product again and again and again. Step one there is activation and getting your users to experience that aha moment quickly and regularly. Sean Klaus, today the VP of product at Metro Mile, but best known as head of growth at Atlassian, joined me for a live growth chat from our 2017 Dreamforce event. There, he explains the long-lasting impact solving the activation problem will have on your business. I think it, it just never ceases to amaze me how much time we, we as an as a industry, spend optimizing our acquisition tactics, right? Like acquiring a huge bunch of people. When you think about that, when you think about all the energy that has gone into this, of understanding who those people are and how to go and find them, and then you look at like the number of people that drop off in the first five minutes, the first 10 minutes, the first day, it always breaks my heart, right? And like even at Atlassian, where I felt like we were getting better and better at this, right? And we had the charts that would show us what was happening. Every one of those people is a person who you have fundamentally burnt, right? Like you, you have failed to give them what, what you told them you would give them just from like a, like a wasted opportunity cost for you as a business, but also like brand damage and everything else that goes with it. So when I think about the ROI of things you can do in a business, making certain that, that, that your customer is safely handed from acquisition to the activation, making certain that they are activated and you have done everything in your power in order to make certain they're activated in terms of they have found their aha moment and they have begun habit forming and then making certain that they're getting the maximum value from your software through engagement. Like those are generally very low investment because they're a problem finding. They're like, you have to find the problems. So they're a search problem and an optimization problem. So they're low investment, but potentially with massive rewards. And the thing is that not only are they rewarding because you keep those users, if you truly succeed at that and you get high engagement at the end of that, then what you really get is sustainable businesses because you get word of mouth, right? People who are highly engaged with your software are always the people who love it, right? And those people who love it will tell other people. And the most authentic form of acquisition by far, all day, every day, is word of mouth, right? And it's amazing the business you can build once you have that uh, engine going. Because your problem is almost always going to be in activation first. So if, if you have $100 and you're starting, I'd be betting like $80 of it uh, in the activation phase. Because mostly what happens is people fail to have their aha moment. And even if they have their aha moment, they drop out before it becomes a habit, right? And so there's a huge amount of value there. I guess the tactics that, that I use in that space are like firstly understanding what my drop-off rates are and then kind of watching uh, users in their very first experience and trying to understand, okay, what are the buttons they don't find? What, what are the things they are confused about? And then trying really simple stuff like, you know, a dialogue box saying, 
these are the things you are probably looking for and three buttons on it like that lead them in the most likely three places they want to go right it's amazing like i like we at Atlassian we tried all sorts of things like we at one point we had a 12 step onboarding flow right it was deeply involved and it had a whole bunch of things that it taught you and it was very successful so good for us and then but when i talk about champion challenger one of the things we did was that we were constantly trying to beat that and so we later on ended up with an onboarding flow that was called Choose Your Own Adventure. And it literally was what I just described to you. It was one dialogue box with three buttons. And it turned out that it outperformed the 12-step program because the 12-step program was trying to tell you enough that you could do the rest, right? But it turns out that most of the people who were arriving in the software wanted to do one of three things, right? So rather than needing to educate them about those three things, about the way in which they could go about thinking about the software and find it, just giving it to them was enough as well, right? And so that's you know some of the really simple stuff you can do in that space. Let's chat about retention. It has become one of the most important topics among growth professionals today. And while most SaaS companies are talking about and building products for acquisition, retention is what separates the most valuable companies from the rest of the pack. Growth advisor Casey Winters has built his career on writing, speaking, and helping companies with their retention strategies. Casey was previously the product lead on the growth team at Pinterest, where he helped the company reach 150 million monthly active users. We were fortunate enough to host him here in the studio a while back, and during his visit, he was able to break down the most successful retention tactics he's found in his career to date. So sure, you can send emails and notifications, and that will be a layer of additional retention on top of your product, but it won't fix broken retention. It will, it's an optimization play. So what I can give a few examples of what we found at, at Grubhub and Pinterest. So at Grubhub, we talked to users and we said, okay, why don't you use Grubhub more often? And they would say, it's expensive. I was like, well, that's weird. Grubhub actually doesn't charge you at all. But what they meant is that minimums were high, delivery fees were high, and it felt like they were spending a lot to get dinner. So what we did is we went back to our restaurants and we said, hey, people aren't ordering as much as they would because your minimum's too high or your delivery fee is too high. Why don't you try a test where you drop those and we can see if the increased volume you'll receive will make up for the lower margins on those orders. We got a few restaurants to try that and they saw a dramatic increase in volume that way more than made up for the loss in margin per order. And then we were able to use those testimonials to help other restaurants lower their minimums and fees. And that increased both the retention rate, so how many people would continue to use Grubhub, how often they would use it, and how many people would order the first time because they were able to find something that was affordable for them that they liked. So it was a really big effort and win for the company. The other thing with related to increasing retention is just getting more variety overall. We basically saw at Grubhub, the more restaurants you add, the higher the conversion rate is, and the more often people order. So, you know, if you only have pizza and Chinese restaurants, you get a certain level of retention. But if you expand to sushi and Indian and all of these other things, then people can use it for a lot more occasions. So that was a big effort that also worked out really well. For Pinterest, basically the problem was that the product had gotten too complicated. So as we did this research internationally, we saw that we were just throwing too many concepts at people and people were just not seeing content that they liked and understanding the value. So what we basically did is we went back to the product and we stripped it down. We basically removed all the advanced features for new users and said, hey, the only thing that they're going to do is connect to cool content. And then if we understand that they get that, they like the content and they start saving it, then we can start to reintroduce some of these other things. But it's silly to try to tell a person about a group board if they don't know what a board is yet, right? 
we did that for basically the first 30 days of the product. So not the first few minutes, like the first 30 days, like all this stuff is gone. We're going to make sure you understand that you can save things. We're going to make sure you can understand that this pin came from another website and you can go click on it to get there. And everything else is gone until we make sure you understand that. And we can start to slowly reintroduce other things. And that really helped out uh, activation rate and long-term retention for the business. So that sort of slow roll of contextually educating people on what they need next. Yes. And not being too cute about it. So for example, at, at Pinterest, like the save button said, pin it. And people internationally were like, we'd ask them, okay, what do you think that button does? And they're like, oh, I didn't know it was a button. It looked like the logo. So they wouldn't click on it. They would never find out what it was. So then we finally just said, why don't we just make it the local word for save? And then people started clicking on it more and people started connecting to the value more. So, you know, we're trying to get a little bit too cute, a little bit too brand focused on some of these things where the most important thing a brand should do is help people understand what the value of this thing, what is the brand promise, right? And we were obscuring that uh, with our branding work. So that was another optimization we made that really helped out. As Andrew Chin mentioned earlier in this episode, growth, quite frankly, is a game of diminishing returns. The tactics and channels that worked yesterday likely are not working as well today and are going to yield even worse results tomorrow. So to stay ahead of the curve, you have to test new ideas and test them again and again and again. Every growth experiment, no matter the results, presents an opportunity to learn about your business and your users. For Gina Gotthilf, formerly the VP of Marketing and Growth at the education app Duolingo, a dedication to testing was at the core of her team's strategy. What did that look like in practice? Here, Gina shares one of the Duolingo testing lessons that sticks with her most today. This came from Foursquare long back in the day, but there's a lot of different apps and games that you can collect badges as you go. And we really wanted to introduce that into Duolingo. And I'm happy to share more later if you'd like, but we actually tried it at first and failed massively and thought the badges didn't work for a whole year. And then we went wow. back to it and decided to try it again. And it was so successful. And, you know, talking about like all these different drawbacks to other metrics that I was mentioning before. This was one case where this helped retention, it helped monetization, it helped learning, it helped everything because we could just tell people do this for a badge and we can get them to do all kinds of stuff. If you offer badges to people so that you, know, that you can get them to do all kinds of things and to have all kinds of different behaviors that are beneficial to them and are also beneficial to the app. So for example, Use Duolingo every day is like an obvious one. It's not a badge, but if you have an X day streak, then you earn a badge. So you really want to get there. Use Duolingo in the morning, use Duolingo at night, or like click on this tab and engage with someone, invite a friend, like buy an item. You know, there's all this different stuff. Some of it, which is related to learning and some of it, which is just related to getting the user to see more of the app and experience more of it, which leads them to like it more and, and, and retain longer, but also just very short-term things too, like invite their friends and buy something on the app. It was the experiment. And I can credit my team with like really insisting for badges way after I was like, you know, guys, we shouldn't waste our time. It's too much of an investment. You know, we don't really know what the return is going to be because when we first thought let's introduce badges, we thought, okay, like, why do people like badges? Oh, maybe it's because they really like this feeling of getting something and feeling like rewarded and like they did something good. So we decided to replicate that. You know, we would often come up with the minimum viable tests for things. So like instead of creating an entire badge system, what's the simplest thing we can do to test whether that's going to have an effect or not? And if it has an effect, then we can go and build an entire badge system. It's going to take us months. So we just did this thing where like if you signed up, you got this pop up of like a girl with balloons 
Um, and it was basically like this like congratulations for signing up thing. In retrospect, it sounds really stupid and I like, can't even believe that we thought it was going to work, but we were really convinced that that would replicate that feeling of like getting something. And if we saw an increase in metrics there, then we could start including more of those throughout the app and they would be badges. Um, unsurprisingly, at least to me now, uh, that did nothing. And unfortunately, our conclusion was, well, then it's not worth investing in badges. And so we didn't. And then we spent all this time just kind of trying to shoot for lower hanging fruit, like kind of things that you can test that take less time to develop, less time to design, you know, that would just require less that may bring us smaller gains than trying to go for these big bets for a really long time. And the whole time my team kept saying like, let's do badges, let's do badges, let's do badges, let's bring it back. Finally, I was like, okay guys, fine. Let's, but you know, if we're gonna do it this time, then we should just like really think about why that didn't work and let's really invest. Um, so we took all, I don't know if it was like two or three months to fully design and implement badges. It seems simple, but like, where do they live on the app? You know, where do people see them? Like, how, when do they get triggered? When do you receive them? How many of them are there? Are there going to be tiers? Can your friends see them? You know, like there's so many different things. There's so many layers to the badges that it took us a really long time. But it was for us, I think as a team, probably our most successful experiment because we were so excited about it. We spent so much time on it and it really, really worked out, not only for us, but other, other teams' metrics too. When you test something and the results are really good or really bad, you don't rest on your laurels. Like you, you don't just say like, oh, that was really bad, let's ignore it. Or that was really good, let's leave it. You know that that has a really big impact. So now that you know that that has a really big impact, it's worth your time going and like trying to squeeze as much juice as you possibly can out of it or improve that feature as much as you can. So with badges, you know, we then went on to make tiered badges. So now you can get like level, level one, level two, level three, and one was gold and one was silver. And to introduce other types of badges with other types of behaviors. And of course, other teams were all like, hey, can you can you do a badge for like getting people to do this? You know, because they wanted their metric to be helped by badges and stuff like that. Same with streaks. We spent a long time thinking about how can what can we do with streaks and how can we make this experience even better because we know it matters to people. If you try something and you get like a whatever, a really tiny percent change, then great that, you know, if it's statistically significant and it's like worth the engineering costs and sort of like the, the code debts that's going into that, then you launch it, but you don't go back and keep trying and trying because you already know that it's not super impactful. Experiments like those Gina references, however complex, have a simple aim, to move a core business metric. Growth metrics are the heartbeat, blood pressure, and temperature of your company the core indicators that are going to reveal the health of your SaaS business at its most fundamental level. There's a problem, though. Growth metrics can be complex, confusing, and often contradictory. While one business might be best off tracking toward daily active users, another could be best served charting towards something more revenue-focused. Sean Ellis, CEO of Growth Hackers, believes whatever metrics you choose to chase should always come back to the value you deliver to your users. He calls this your North Star metric, and he joins us on the show to explain why he thinks this works so well. In order to drive sustainable growth, you need to have a product that people over time get value from and keep using because it's a valuable experience. And so the North Star metric is really about trying to quantify that product market fit in a way that you, you, you know, product market fit is based on this, this benefit. And so how much benefit am I delivering over time to a growing user base? And if you're focused on expanding the benefit or the value that you're delivering, you're going to be able to retain users. And not only that, but what I found is every company that I've worked with, the most important growth lever in each of those businesses is just pure natural word of mouth. And so mm -hmm. 
by focusing on one, delivering people to a valuable experience, and then two, measuring value across the customer base over time, you're looking at the thing that's going to drive sustainable growth. And so the North Star metric is really trying to quantify that value over time. And if you're if everything you're doing is is about trying to expand that, you'll be in good shape long term and driving growth in the business. So what are some tangible examples, maybe good and and bad that you've seen either with, with companies you've worked with or consulted with or just observed? Sure. Yeah. So I, I think kind of a couple of the companies that are pretty well-known companies are very well-known. So like Airbnb, <laughs> Nights Booked. So essentially, if you think again, the value, and, and we can kind of work from what what's not a good one for, for Airbnb. So if we just said app installs, if you were trying to optimize everything around app installs for Airbnb, you could potentially be up and to the right and look like you're killing it. But ultimately, if those people are not booking a room on Airbnb, one, you're not making any money. And two, they're not getting any value to where they actually are going to tell their friends where they're going to come back and use it more. And so it's that that night book that ultimately creates value, not only for the guests, but also for the host. And mm-hmm. so that's sort of the, the value creating moment. For something like Facebook, I think a, an easier proxy for value is just daily active users. And so that's their North Star metric, but it's having more users on the platform that ultimately create more content for people to actually benefit from and create more viewers of other people's content to interact and engage with. And so it creates that that loop back and forth where people are getting value from that system. But it's I think just looking at daily active users is probably a good proxy for the value that's being created on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're, so you're almost quantifying the idea that if, if the Facebook or Airbnb, if Airbnb didn't exist, what would people be most disappointed that they aren't able to do? And it's be able to book that room in a neighborhood that they wouldn't otherwise have access to because hotels are too expensive. And that's that's where they're finding the value. Exactly. And, and then the benefit that you have by having that kind of quantified value is that now you have each person in the company kind of, and, and even each team in the company can start to actually look at what is their role in expanding that value. So, you know, a marketing team might be bringing people, you know, new people into the front door. The product team might be helping to activate and retain people. A support team might be helping to retain people. And so people start to actually understand what is their role in expanding the North Star metric. And you get a lot more shared mission cross-functionally, people pulling in the same direction, which is hugely beneficial to creating a company (laughs) that grows over time. If there's one thing all of our growth guests this season have taught us, it's that sustainable long-term growth, what we all want for our business, comes down to having a fundamental understanding of two key things, your product and the key reasons people are using it. As I look back on the many growth guests we've spoken with in recent months, there's one particular excerpt that I think sums this up best. It comes to us from Brian Rothenberg, a VP and growth leader at the self-service ticketing giant Eventbrite. He reminds us that the right kind of growth always tracks back to your core mission. The talk was about how a company's mission and growth and the strategy involved in both are inextricably mm-hmm. tied. And the example that I provided is like people will do the right what, like they'll build the right things if they understand what are we building towards and how are we uniquely positioned to do it. I'll share an example. Eventbrite was all about open accessibility reach the masses, power the masses, democratize ticketing. These are terms that our founders would frequently talk about. So people understood this is core to our ethos. Um, Very early on, the product was initially launched to be only for paid events. 
but some of the early users were actually putting $0 into the price field for tickets. And like some companies would have viewed that as a loophole and closed that loophole and said, we're just going to monetize. And, and the founder said, well, no, this is happening. It's organic. It's open. It, it matches our mission. And they let it happen. And so that ended up building one of the biggest growth levers for the company, wow. which is freemium, where, you know, a huge percentage of our tickets, quote, sold are actually free tickets. But that drives trial. And a lot of those initially free event creators convert over to paid and it's a huge lever for us. So that never would have come about if it wasn't tied to the company's mission. Mm -hmm. And that was just an example of how the two are linked. I've seen it a number of times. I've seen companies, TaskRabbit for one, it was just growing like a weed for a while, but there were some top line growth things that were masking underlying problems. And so it's led me to believe that if you don't know why your product or service is growing, you're just one step away from slowing down. Like it will inevitably happen. So I like to view a business as an onion and you're constantly peeling back the layers to more deeply understand it. And even if you deeply understand your business, you have to always keep trying. And then if you feel like you have your business down, like you have to be peeling back the layers of your customers' motivations and they're so tied together. The thing I love about that excerpt from Brian is it connects the dots all the way back down to our users. How can we find new ways to connect them to the value of our products so that they become loyal, long-term paying customers who ultimately will share our product with others? That's ultimately the essence of not just all of these lessons, but growth in general. So if you found any of this material valuable, there are two easy ways to get a lot more of it. First, as I mentioned atop the show, you can get your free copy of our growth handbook now at intercom.com forward slash books. It features many of the voices you heard today, plus inside takes from the folks pulling the growth levers here at Intercom. Secondly, you can check out our full library of podcast episodes and hear from more great growth guests, including Slack's head of growth marketing, Rachel Hepworth, and former Postmates growth leader, Siki Chen. You can find all of these and more on iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, and all the rest. Just search for Inside Intercom and subscribe. And with that, happy reading and thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.